History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 49, Breaking Through. Last time on the History of Persia, we got up to speed on the history of Greece in the decade between Persian invasions. Athens went through a soft political revolution as Thucydides came to power on the back of common sailors, and we whipped through the history of Sparta from confused linguistic origins in the Greek Dark Age, through their enslavement of their neighbors and dominance in the Peloponnese, and right on into the beginnings of the alliance known as the Hellenic League, or as I'll usually refer to them, just the Greeks. We left off with the preparation for the first real confrontation between the Greek allies and the Persian army. After failing to hold the Vale of Tempe in Thessaly, the Greeks pulled back to two defensible locations. By land, they would attempt to halt the Persian advance between the sheer cliffs at Thermopylae. By sea, they would blockade the Persian fleet between the Greek mainland and the northern tip of Euboea in the Straits of Artemisium. Before continuing with the narrative, I also want to take one last opportunity to remind you that we are approaching the episode 50 celebration. To commemorate 50 episodes and two full years of the podcast, I'm doing an AMA episode, where you can ask me anything, 
about ancient Persia, history in general, podcasting, or myself, and I'll do my best to answer those questions. You can send your questions to me through the contact page on historyofpersiapodcast.com or email me at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me through any of my usual social media profiles. On Facebook and Instagram, it's at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, I'm just History of Persia. If you know where to find me somewhere else online, you can ask there as well, like Discord or Reddit. And of course, those who financially support the podcast on Patreon can always message me there. There will also be a link to the contact page down in the description of this episode. I've got a few pages of questions now, but I don't want to miss anyone's thoughts, so ask me anything. I also want to direct everyone's attention to Patreon for a minute. Obviously, there are all the usual rewards, like ad-free listening and access to bonus episodes that you get with a monthly subscription there, but right now I want you to notice the free content. As of now, the entirety of my In the Words of Zarathustra project is up on Patreon, available for free. It is only on Patreon, but that's where you can go to hear me read the entirety of Zarathustra's Gothas. Find that either in the description of this episode or by going to my Patreon and searching for the Gothas tag. In honor of today's episode, there is another piece of free content on Patreon. This too will be linked in the episode description and pinned to the top of my Patreon feed for the time being. That is my bonus episode covering Zack Snyder's movie 300, the fictionalized retelling of the very Battle of Thermopylae that we're about to discuss today. If my thoughts on that movie are something that interests you, that will be available for free on Patreon for the next two weeks or so, and like I said, you can find it pinned right to the top of the feed. Alright, on with the show. We left off with the Greeks taking up their positions and the Persians traveling south through Greece, largely unopposed, building up some appropriate drama for the first major conflict between the Greek allies and the forces of the Great King. As usual for battles and wars, there will be maps on the website. So today, I'm faced with a dilemma. It's the same dilemma faced any time we come to a battle with a detailed description, but in this case, it's dialed up to 11. We have a detailed description for this whole war. Herodotus's epic history dedicates almost one-third of his whole narrative to the years 480 through 478. One extreme is to follow many popular histories of Greece and give whole episodes or chapters over to each event. The other is to simply read from Pierre Briand's book, From Cyrus to Alexander. Quote, On land, despite the resistance of the Greeks to whose heroism Herodotus devotes a passage of disproportionate length, chapter 7, 201 to 39, the Persians took the pass at Thermopylae, which is really all he has to say about the battle in his description of the narrative. Of course, even the immense 1199 pages of From Cyrus to Alexander was constrained by both the limits of time and his publishers. For perspective, at our current rate, the final total of my Achaemenid scripts will be a few hundred pages longer. 
I will try to fall somewhere in the middle with today's episode, in proportion to how important these events are in Persian history, rather than their propaganda value to Greek culture. As always, I'll recommend the Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast as the one to go to for the Greek side of things, as Mark remains just about one episode ahead of me going through this part of the narrative. The first hostilities over the two Greek blockades actually occurred far away from either battle line, at an island called Skiathos, which sits right at the entrance of the Strait of Artemisium between Euboea and the mainland. Obviously, this made it a perfect scouting point for a team of three Greek triremes, waiting at the mouth of the pass to see where the Persian ships were coming from. Likewise, the Persian fleet sent ten ships ahead to scout out the same island, and upon seeing the Phoenician triremes approach, the Greeks turned around and tried to sail back to the rest of the fleet. Herodotus for some reason tries to paint this as a terrified retreat, but this was almost certainly what they were supposed to do. When the Persians arrived, this small Greek scouting party was supposed to alert their comrades. The first encounter was a flawless victory for the Persian navy. Two Greek triremes were boarded and captured, while the third was forced to run aground on the mainland while its crew fled on foot, which gave them the opportunity to send word to the Greek fleet despite their loss, and probably led them to inadvertently rendezvous with Leonidas's army at some point in their travels. The Battle of Skiathos went to the Persians. According to Herodotus, this spooked the Greek fleet and caused the navy to pull back to Chalkis, on the southwestern side of Euboea. Strategically, this doesn't make any sense, especially if the report that reached them was at all accurate. Retreating that far south exposed the Greek rear at Thermopylae, and opened a passage for the Persian navy into Attica. Meanwhile, the force that they were supposedly afraid of was just 10 ships strong, compared to the Greeks' about 300 total triremes at Artemisium. I really don't have an explanation here, except maybe we're missing the crucial detail that the whole fleet hadn't arrived yet. Other than that, I can't imagine why the whole Greek navy would retreat from a measly 10 Persian scouting ships. That or Herodotus just has them retreat to the wrong location here, which is equally plausible. Regardless, this story does not end well for those ten ships. They didn't even finish rounding Skiathos when three of their number ran aground on a reef, supposedly directed there by a subjugated Greek navigator. Still, the Persian scouts were able to send word back to Thermae, and the rest of the fleet sailed down to join them, now forewarned of this dangerous reef in their path. The greater fleet met up with their scouts at Cape Sepios, now known as the Cape of St. George. Bad luck for the Persian navy will continue to be an overriding theme in Herodotus, to the degree that it is tempting to assume that at least some of it has to be a literary trope. Possibly because Herodotus knew that his initial figure of 1,200 ships was too large, he will continue to whittle down their numbers approaching the conflict at Artemisium. The beachhead at Cape Sepios was too small to house the entire Persian fleet. 
So some of the ships had to rest at anchor in the open water and were caught in a storm which sank a number of ships and drowned their crews, dashing some apart on the shallow rocks and running others into the ground. Herodotus says that 400 ships sank, but this cannot be reconciled with the 600 ships most historians think were present. A proportional loss to Herodotus numbers would mean 200 ships and a much closer margin between the Greek and Persian navies later in their confrontations. But Herodotus is insistent that the Persians maintain superior numbers throughout the campaigns, so we just have to say that the Persian fleet lost some ships off of Cape Sepios. It was only at this point that the Greeks returned to Artemisium. With boosted confidence, the Greeks declared that they had the divine favor of Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea. The Persians, meanwhile, moved their fleet from Sepios to Aphetai, inside the Pagasetic Gulf, where they would have more shelter from the storms at sea. Though it is not directly stated, Herodotus gives the impression that the Persian ships began patrolling the eastern half of the strait as 15 Persian triremes were sailing near Artemisium when they took Greek ships for a contingent of their own fleet and sailed directly into their midsts. The Greeks proceeded to capture all 15 of them with relative ease. The mistake was probably made easier because the Persian ships in question were actually subjugated Greeks from Anatolia under the command of Sandokes, the regional governor of Aeolus who was captured along with his men, marking the first Persian commander to fall victim to this war, though certainly not the last. These crews were interrogated for information on the invasion fleet before being sent on to Corinth as prisoners of war, either to be enslaved or possibly ransomed back to the Persians at a later date. It's never commented on again. The battle of, I guess, poorly labeled ancient ships goes to the Greeks. While all of this was happening, Xerxes was still making his way south through Greece with the land army. Finally, after weeks on the move, the Persian army arrived at the city of Trachis, just to the northeast of Thermopylae. Just south of Trachis, across a river called the Phoenix, was a small village called Anthela and the narrow pass of Thermopylae itself. Overnight, Trachis and Anthela would have become the staging ground for the Persian conquest of Greece, as Xerxes and his army camped in the area south of Trachis, and the Greeks were encamped in the pass itself. As the two sides assembled, both command structures took some time to consider their options. Some of the Peloponnesian Greeks once again pushed to retreat to Corinth and just abandon northern Greece to its fate. But the northern Greeks, especially those soldiers whose cities were already behind Persian lines, refused, and ultimately Leonidas of Sparta ordered everyone to stay put. The Persians had to take stock of the new landscape and evaluate any advantages they might have beyond numbers, and assess the enemy force which they were just now coming face to face with for the first time. To this end, Xerxes sent out spies to take stock of the Greek army and the terrain and report back to the king and other commanders. According to Herodotus, who probably could not have actually known the great king's reaction to anything, Xerxes was shocked at how small the opposing force was. On one hand, the 10,000 strong allied force was paltry and hardly representative of the full force of the assembled allies. 
On the other hand, Herodotus never portrays the Greeks as overwhelmingly confident in the plan to halt the Persian advance, and there was a lot of territory that needed defending behind the Greek lines. Demeritos, the exiled king of Sparta, is portrayed as declaring the Greek force sufficient because the Spartans were the best of all men. But ultimately, Demeritos is biased, possibly unaware of the meager 300 Spartans present, and almost certainly just fictionalized by Herodotus here. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The Persians stalled for days, either hoping the Greeks would withdraw in the face of the growing Persian encampment, or just waiting for the huge train of soldiers to catch up. On the fifth day, Herodotus says the first wave of a Persian offensive was sent out with the intention of taking captives. Herodotus identifies this as a force of Medes and Kissians, which we can roughly interpret as Western and Eastern Iranians more broadly, as Kissia was Herodotus's name for somewhere in the region of Bactria. Herodotus's description of the fighting may not be all that accurate, given that he does not mention archery at all here, despite it being the primary weapon of the Persian army. It could also be that the Persians were not confident in their archers following experiences in Ionia and Marathon, as always, it's just hard to tell. Herodotus instead describes a Persian charge falling on the Greek line, which was subsequently slaughtered. 
This alone is not unrealistic. Even a strong Persian formation would have been hampered by the length of their spears. Later sources uniformly describe Persian infantry with pikes about six feet long, while the classical Greek sarissa was eight feet or longer. To even begin to attack the Greeks in an infantry engagement, the Persian front line would be exposed to Greek spears. Herodotus says both that they fell quickly and that the fighting lasted all day, which suggests that the Persians weren't slaughtered quite as quickly as his Greek propaganda would have us believe. You can't both take all day to do something and do it really fast. Either way, the regular Persian infantry proved insufficient early in the day, and Xerxes ordered a stronger force to replace them. This is our first absolutely certain encounter with the so-called Immortals, the 10,000 Persian and Median men who acted as the full-time core of the Persian army. They must have been involved in most of the action I've discussed on the show, at least since Darius came to power, but this is the first time Herodotus identifies them by name. Unfortunately, they were mostly working with the same equipment in the same space as their militia counterparts, and were similarly repulsed by the Greeks. Herodotus suggests that the immortals attempted to attack in different formations over the course of the first day, to no avail, and were forced to return to camp. The only significant difference between the immortals and the drafted infantry may have been that they were better armored and thus faced fewer losses. The sixth day at Thermopylae, the second day of fighting, went much the same way. The Greeks cycled out the front lines of their armies with the armies of different cities in some kind of shifts, and Xerxes deployed different units from different parts of the empire against them to try and gain some kind of upper hand with little luck in the narrow pass at Thermopylae. It was at that point that a Greek living in the area around Trachis approached the Persians with some information. Ephialtes of Malis told the Persian army that there was a narrow path running up the mountain around the pass at Thermopylae, known locally as the Anapaya. It was probably used primarily by shepherds, but it was the game-changer that Xerxes needed. Herodotus also says that some other people, named Onetes and Cordalos, had been blamed for the same actions and betrayal of the Greeks, but says he prefers the Ephialtes version of the story because Ephialtes was reportedly murdered in vengeance, and his killer was in fact honored by the Spartans after the war, which is frankly better evidence. The Greeks were lucky in that this was not history's first battle of Thermopylae. Herodotus describes how the region of Phocis had once been attacked through the same route by the city of Malis, another polis in the same general area. Now in 480, the Phocian contingent of the Greek army was aware of this path through the mountains and was guarding the Anapaya. Word was sent down the mountain, and 1,000 Phocians remained to guard the pass as the immortals were dispatched to outflank the Greeks. The Phocians chose a position to fortify, but the Persians did not attack them. Instead, they were pinned down in a hail of arrows, and the immortals just kept marching on. Upon hearing that thousands of Persians were about to appear in their rear, Leonidas made the decision to order a strategic retreat. 
This left a minor force of only a couple of thousand to delay the Persian advance. The contingent from Sparta, Leonidas and his 300 guardsmen, the Spartiates and Perioikoi non-citizens, and their Helot slaves were left alongside a few hundred Thebans, whose city had already surrendered. Leonidas had actually forced them to stay as potential hostages, given that they were, theoretically, Persian subjects now. There were also 700 thespian hoplites, who volunteered to remain behind and reinforce Leonidas. On the third morning of fighting, seven days after Xerxes arrived at Trachis, the Persians attacked the Greeks on two fronts. Herodotus tells us the Greeks fought recklessly, suggesting that the typical phalanx formation may have been abandoned. It's also possible that the Greeks targeted Persian commanders in their attack, given that he lists two of Xerxes' half-brothers and one of his uncles among the Persian dead. The Greeks supposedly held their own while the Persians were still attacking their front line. But when the immortals came out of the mountain pass, the Greeks retreated to a small hilltop further down the road, where they were assaulted with arrows and javelins. The Thebans broke rank and surrendered as soon as they could, while all of the remaining Spartans died in battle. For the rest, the Thespians and non-citizen Lacedaemonians, it was a mixed bag, but ultimately there were survivors who surrendered and were taken captive by the Persian army. As far as Herodotus's narrative is concerned, these survivors are probably very important sources, though he doesn't cite any of them in particular. With the Greeks defeated, Xerxes and his army had the run of the pass and continued their march toward Athens. The Battle of Thermopylae went to the Persians. While all of this was happening, the Persian navy had also begun clashing with their Greek counterparts at Artemisium. According to Herodotus, the Persian fleet first assaulted the Greek blockade on the same day that fighting commenced at Thermopylae. Some scholars think this is a little too poetic and that fighting probably began earlier, but ultimately, when a battle starts has very little impact on the narrative so long as the outcome remains the same. When we left the Greek fleet a few minutes ago, they had just returned to Artemisium, confident that the Persian fleet was so ravaged by storms that they must have the god Poseidon on their side. Evidently, the tales of naval demise were greatly exaggerated, and some of the Greek captains began calling for retreat once again in the face of a much larger Persian fleet. Just over 300 Greek ships were faced with not quite double that number of Persians, primarily better-constructed and more maneuverable Phoenician triremes. According to Herodotus, Themistocles of Athens and the Eubians, whose island they were based on, had to bribe the Peloponnesian commanders to stay and hold the line. And ultimately, stay they did. The Persian admirals, including Xerxes' own brother and satrap of Egypt, Achaemenes, were aware of their intimidating numerical advantage, but also aware that the Greeks were much more familiar with these waters, giving them the advantage during a retreat. To negate this, the navy attempted a similar tactic to the one performed at Thermopylae two days later. They sent a contingent around the eastern side of Euboea, facing the open sea, to come up on the Greek rear and catch the Hellenic fleet between two Persian pincers. 
an Ionian salvage diver named Skelios managed to use his diving skills to desert from the Persian fleet and swim to the Greeks. In the ancient world, divers were basically just strong swimmers who could hold their breath for a really long time. When he was sent down to find salvage in the wreckage from the storms a few days earlier, he stayed under and swam away. Herodotus says he didn't come up until he reached Artemisium, which is impossible, but it's very believable that an ancient diver could get far away in a single breath and escape. Scylios informed the Greeks that there was a contingent coming to ambush their rear, prompting the Greeks to take an offensive, if only to observe Persian naval tactics firsthand. This first engagement was generally a success for the Greeks. The Persian ships surrounded them, but they were able to break the formation and capture some of the Ionian triremes in the process before pulling back to their blockade. That night, another storm rolled in and once again battered the Persians. At Aphetai, where the Persian sailors were encamped, the corpses and debris from the previous week's storm washed ashore and battered the remaining ships. Around the eastern side of Euboea, the contingent sent to block the Greek rear was caught in open water and wrecked along the coast. Herodotus says that this was a full quarter of the remaining Persian ships, but as we've seen, his numbers from these storms are hazy at best. Regardless, he suggests that these storms drove the Persians close to parity with the enemy navy, depleting their numerical advantage, which was probably true based on the account of later battles between the Greeks and the Persian fleet. More ships arrived from Athens on the second day, and an emboldened Greek fleet once again went on the offensive. Herodotus gives the impression that this second day was more like naval raiding than an actual battle with formations. Then on the third day at Artemisium, Xerxes demanded a full frontal assault on the Greek naval position to match his attack at Thermopylae. Though their numbers were diminished, the Persian fleet was still larger, and once they were trying to surround the Greeks in the narrowest point in the strait, geography nullified that numerical advantage. The strait at Artemisium became overcrowded, and Persian ships were bumping into one another, beaching and sinking their own comrades, thus giving the Greeks openings to escape. Herodotus says that this third day of naval combat was brutal for both sides, but ultimately favored the Greeks in terms of sheer casualty numbers, though maybe that isn't saying much for the smaller force. Ultimately, the Persian fleet had to pull back and regroup at their anchorage, presumably to make plans for another attack. What they didn't know yet is that the Greeks were about to cede the Straits of Artemisium without another fight. With half of the Athenian ships sunk or captured, to say nothing of the ships from other cities, Themistocles was already making plans to retreat to the southern coast of Greece and defend his home city. They were preparing to send word to Leonidas that Artemisium was lost when they received word from Thermopylae that the land army had been routed as well. Themistocles encouraged a scorched earth campaign in Euboea, burning crops and slaughtering livestock to deprive the Persians of those supplies as they sailed down the eastern coast of the mainland, and he left notes and carvings on the coast for Persian foraging parties to find, encouraging Ionian and Carian Greeks to desert. Whether deservedly or not, the Battle of Artemisium went to the Persians. The Persian fleet first captured the Euboean town of Histia, also called Oreos, 
presumably raiding it for supplies, before heading northwest to rendezvous with the land army at Thermopylae and tour their comrades' battlefield. Herodotus says 20,000 Persian soldiers died at Thermopylae, and for once his numbers almost make sense. 20,000 out of 200,000 in two days of heavy fighting at a technical and geographic disadvantage is not unreasonable. It's only excessive in that the Greek force was so small, though stranger events have happened in the history of warfare. From Thermopylae, the Persian invasion force continued south. The army turned southwest and marched through the regions of Doris and Phocis, a relatively densely populated area along the Kyphisos River and the foothills of Mount Parnassus. Phocis, in particular, was home to one of the most famous sites in the ancient Mediterranean, the city of Delphi, and the famous Pythia, the oracle of the god Apollo, which we last encountered way back in the first few episodes, when Croesus of Lydia asked the oracle for advice in his war against Cyrus. The Phocian people fled up the sides of Mount Parnassus as refugees or to the city of Aphesa to their southwest, which was out of the Persians' route to Athens. As they fled, the Persians sacked, occupied, and generally conquered the region. Herodotus implies that this was at the instigation of the Thessalians, traditional rivals to the Phocians who had sided with the Persians from the start, and admittedly, it does contrast with Herodotus's portrayal of Xerxes and his army up to this point. So far, Xerxes has displayed typical Persian reverence and neutrality towards Greek culture, respect for Greek temples, respect for the Olympic Games, and at least respectful interest in Spartan culture. But in Phocis, they are portrayed as a rampaging horde, there's one key difference, though. Up to this point, these incidents of typical Persian respect or ambivalence have been in regard to those who submitted peacefully, or those who they had not fought. This just sounds like the Persians had finally entered territory that was openly resisting them. Phocis was also used to make an example of what would happen to any part of Greece that did not preemptively submit. From Phocis, Xerxes' army turned south and prepared to enter Boeotia, the last major region of Greece before they reached the Athenian territory of Attica. The various poles of Boeotia looked at Phocis, did some quick math, and rapidly sent messengers with earth and water to the Persian camp, where their surrender was accepted. From there, Macedonian troops were sent ahead of the main force to occupy Boeotian cities, as a sort of middle ground between the Greeks and foreigners. Greek enough to not be openly hostile or egregiously offend anyone, but alien enough not to be obvious allies against the great king. As the bulk of the army turned southeast to march on Athens, a detachment of the invasion force was sent to Delphi, on the western side of Phocis. By the time of Xerxes' invasion, Delphi had been one of the most prominent oracles in the Mediterranean world for centuries, and in that time, the Temple of Apollo had accrued a famously rich treasury. Even though the Persians almost never persecuted foreign religious sites, and often patronized Greek oracles to secure favorable prophecies, Delphi was ultimately just another city that refused to bow before the king of kings, 
and was slated for the same retribution faced by other rebels. However, Delphi was a relatively small town, and most of the population fled to the neighboring region of Achaea, leaving just 60 men and one of the temple priests behind. According to Herodotus, a collection of sacred weapons that were supposedly unusable by mortal men were housed in the temple treasury, but suddenly appeared on the ground outside as if by magic, and a freak lightning bolt struck the mountainside, collapsing rock and earth onto the Persian army as it passed beneath. This caused the Persians to panic and retreat, pursued by the 60 Delphian hoplites and the spirits of two giant mythological heroes worshipped in the region. Now, if all of that sounds hard to believe, or, you know, impossible, you're right. It's obviously a fantastical story in relation to a place of religious importance, but the temple priests of the most popular oracle in Greece were no strangers to smoke and mirrors, and you have to wonder if the priest who stayed behind helped his small band of defenders with a bit of his own divine intervention. Regardless, Delphi went to the Greeks for the time being. While this was happening in the north, Athens was under no illusions of what was coming for them. Darius had first sent troops to Greece as a punitive exercise against the Athenians in particular, and that job was still unfinished. Xerxes may have turned Greece into the object of grander ambitions, but it was made clear that he intended to make good on his father's threats. The Athenians sent word to the fleet retreating from Artemisium, and the boats came to the Athenian ports to act as an impromptu evacuation shuttle, ferrying the majority of Athens' population two kilometers off the mainland to the island of Salome. Now, typically, I gloss over all of the oracles and divine signs interpreted by the Greeks when they're involved in our narrative because most of them have very little bearing on events. They're usually referenced in terms of, by the way, this happened before, which is why historical figure X did thing Y. But the oracle given by the Pythia of Delphi to the Athenians in preparation for this war deserves some attention, both because of its fame and how brilliant it is in its simplicity. The Athenians had been told to trust in their wooden walls, a cryptic message that anyone informed of Athenian politics and history could tell meant one of two things. Either trust in the wooden walls of their fleet, or the wooden barricades that surrounded the Acropolis, the citadel at the center of their city. Those were the two great wooden defensive mechanisms available to Athens in 480. Themistocles had successfully persuaded most of the city that his ships were the subject of the prophecy, and thus Athens evacuated and planned to mount a naval defense. Those that remained behind with the hoplite soldiers, who either held out hope that the oracle had meant the walls of the Acropolis, or refused to see Athens burned without a fight. Either way, the oracle of Delphi would be right. If the Athenians chose either strategy and won, it could be argued that she was correct. And if they lost, it was just that the Athenians had chosen poorly. Much like Croesus's battle would destroy a great kingdom 60 years earlier, the Pythia would always be right. The Greek fleet shuttled as many Athenians as they could to Salome, while the Persian army 
sacked the cities of Thespiae and Plataea in northern Attica. Herodotus says very little about these conquests, but we can probably imagine that they took a similar form to what he described in Phocis. Finally, almost 30 years after they had submitted earth and water to Artaphernes, a Persian army arrived at Athens. Four months after they had departed from Sardis, and seven months, or more, since they had left their myriad homelands at Xerxes' call. As the city was almost entirely abandoned, they entered Athens and had free reign to collect the spoils of war. They found and captured a few stragglers hiding in a temple, but only faced resistance when they reached the wooden palisade of the Acropolis overlooking the city. In Athens, there is a second hill across from the Acropolis called the Areopagus, where the Persians took up a position and fired flaming arrows into the Acropolis and its walls until the wooden barrier burned and collapsed. Herodotus says that Xerxes brought out the sons of Hippias, the last pisistratid tyrant of Athens, who had fled to his father's court. These estranged Athenian nobles tried to negotiate a surrender with their native-born cousins and were refused outright. When the Persians tried to take the hill, despite the loss of fortifications, the Athenians responded by rolling boulders and debris down on the attackers. Ultimately, it took a group of Persians scaling the sheer cliffs which the Athenians had left undefended on the far side of the citadel before the defenses could be breached. Some of the defenders retreated into one of the temples on the Acropolis, while the presumably exhausted and frustrated mountaineers opened the gates and let their allies in. The remaining defenders were killed, and the last bit of Athens was plundered for war trophies. Then, the wooden buildings of the Acropolis were burned to the ground. This pillaging is actually one of the most important events in our understanding of ancient Athens. Not only did it pave the way for monumental rebuilding projects that led to such famous structures as the Parthenon, but it also left an incredibly distinct burn layer in the archaeological record. Since we know that the Acropolis was sacked in 480 BCE, that layer of scarring and ash is used as a benchmark for all other excavations on the Athenian Acropolis. According to Herodotus, Xerxes ordered the Pisistratids and ostracized Athenians who had fled to Persia to perform sacrifices in the burnt shell of the Acropolis as a way to consecrate his victory. This battle of the Acropolis went to the Persians, while Athens, empty and abandoned, was occupied solely by its new king and his army. And that is where I am going to leave for the time being, with the rather enigmatic image of Xerxes lording over the empty shell of a city. The next narrative episode will be episode 51, where we will see it all go wrong. Before that, though, we have episode 50 and the AMA. There's still time to get your questions in, so go to the contact page at historyofpersiapodcast.com, follow the link in the episode description, email me at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, or find me on social media. It's History of Persia on Twitter and History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. 
If you want to show support for the show financially, you can find various rewards for monthly subscriptions over on patreon.com slash historyofpersia, or give a one-time payment through the official website. If financial support isn't in the cards for you right now, or even if it is, the best way to support independent podcasts is still to tell other people about the show. Leave a review on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or your preferred platform, and tell your friends and followers. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.